This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 330. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today is a special episode where I will be playing back an interview I had the pleasure of doing together with Andrew Branca of Law of Self-Defense and Chad Enos from over at Caltech. We did this interview in the Caltech, bro- well, bro- <laughs> I almost said the Caltech broadcast booth. I guess you could call it the Cal- Caltech broadcast booth because we've done a few episodes from their booth now. Uh, this was recorded at the NRA show earlier this year. Uh, it seemed like it would be a, a fun opportunity to sit down with Andrew Branca and Chad Enos both. Uh, get you know, a- obviously Andrew is the expert on law of self defense, and I thought it'd be interesting to bring in another person like Chad from Caltech there for a different perspective. We attempted to do as best we could a Facebook Live broadcast along with this interview, just so we could get some questions from viewers. And I don't know how successful that was as far as our our, uh, our audio was not very good for, for the Facebook viewers, but we did get some good questions and you'll hear those questions addressed in today's episode. So it, I think there's still some really incredible content in today's episode. So stick around. You're going to enjoy this one. I do want to mention that an honorary sponsor of today's episode is Keltec uh, Firearms for uh, being part of this and allowing us to come into their booth and record this episode. So thank you, Chad and team over there at Keltec. And also, well, Law of Self-Defense because of Andrew making available his time uh, and coming in and, and doing that with us as well. Right now, I want to highlight that this week, starting in fact tomorrow, July 2nd at 8 a.m. Mountain Time begins our annual tradition of our Happy Birthday America sale. This is, uh, I think, the third time we've done this. It's a big deal for us because this sale, we uh, similar to Black Friday, where we really just pull out the stops uh, as far as a lot of really incredible pricing on some great quality products. Now, we have products in this sale that are up to 90% off. Uh, we, we always highlight a few kind of doorbusters, if you will. Obviously, nobody's rushing the doors on this being a virtual sale and all. But let me just highlight a couple of really cool products. Some of these are limited availability, just so you know. Uh, but first up, we've got an Elite Survival Systems Loadout Range Bag. This is a really cool bag. Uh, I mean, this is this is the ultimate range bag as far as taking stuff to the range, having a pocket and a place for everything. You know me, I, I love my range bags. I got a couple others. Uh, this is a really, really cool bag. You're going to love this. This is normally $160. It's available as a doorbuster. Only 15 of these available starting again in our sale tomorrow morning, July 2nd at 8 a.m. Mountain Time. $39.99, $40 for this $160 bag. We've got products from HiViz. We've got the HiViz Lightwave H3 sights. 20 of those available. $135 sights. Only $33.75 starting tomorrow. Lucid Optics sent us and really worked out a great deal with us to uh, put in the sale their HD7 Red Dot Optic. This is a great quality optic made by an American company right in the grand old state of Wyoming. So you know Jacob will love that. Actually, he does love that. $250 optic for only $62.50, 75% off. And we have the Cross Tactical Universal Magnetic Mag uh, Holster or, or Mag Pouch. Only 15 of these available. They are normally $55, available for $13.75. 
That's nothing. We have a whole bunch of other great products on sale all week long. The sale runs again from tomorrow morning all the way through, I think it's Saturday night later this week. What is that, July 6th? I think that's right. So from July 2nd to July 6th, the, the Happy Birthday America sale is running. But the catch is we do these sales twice a year, the Happy Birthday America sale and Black Friday big time sale. We only do them twice a year, and they are one of our ways, one of our many ways of giving back and saying thank you to our many Guardian Nation members. So if you are not a member, I'm sorry you're going to miss out on these sales, but I also got to ask, why aren't you a member? Check it out. Head on over to happybdayamerica.com to check out the sale so you can see everything available there and find out how to take advantage of those sale prices. And there's some information there how to get signed up to become a Guardian Nation member, and you'll be able to take full advantage of this massive, massive sale. We've had customers in the past that have walked away with close to $1,000 worth of product for just pennies on the dollar. Really incredible stuff. So uh, I'm super excited as if you can't tell about the Happy Birthday America sale. Again, starting tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. Mountain Time. Don't miss out. And just for more general information about Guardian Nation, you can always go to guardiannation.com. All right? There you have it. So I'm going to go ahead and get into this interview now. We'll play this back. Of course, this was recorded live on the showroom floor from the Caltech booth. So you'll notice that there's some show noise. Uh, I think that just kind of adds to the ambiance. But uh, again, great interview together with Andrew Branca and Chad Enos. Let's cue that now. Hey, folks. Uh, we are here at the Caltech booth. And uh, actually, we're going to do a special kind of surprise podcast with guess who? Andrew Branca. Hey, folks. Law of self-defense in the house. Yep. And so you're probably not going to hear us super well on the live feed here. Uh, you're going to want to go and actually listen to the recorded podcast. We're actually set up here with our recorder device, our headsets, and we're going to be recording this interview with Andrew. And guess what? We also have Chad Enos from Caltech. Yo. Yeah. He's looking sh super sharp today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so basically, we decided we'd go live so we can take questions from you guys. Uh, and that'll kind of guide our, our discussion here today. So, uh, uh, again, we got got Andrew Branca, we got Chad. We're here in the awesome Caltech booth. Check this out over my shoulder. That is the KSG 25, and that's got the long that's the long barrel, right? It is. Yeah, it's the 30 incher. Yes. Uh, so that's the one I, I, you can actually hold 25 shells in, right? Yes. Yeah. Serious stuff there, guys. Hence the 25. Yeah, hence the 25 yeah. in the name. <laughs> and you released the, the KS7 at uh, SHOT Show. Yes. Which is pretty cool, too. Hey, it once is. Once again, there's Chad, folks. Um, KS7 is pretty cool. So I know the audio, again, is not going to be great. The video's not even going to be that great because I don't have the space here to, like, set this up. I don't have any good place to actually set this up either where we can get all in the shot. But uh, here we go. All right. <laughs> Enos. <laughs> El, this guy Elke, he's always like joking. He's like, "It's Brian Enos's cousin." <laughs> oh, I, my, Brian Enos is my uncle. What? Are you serious? It's not the Brian Enos, but yeah. Oh. Brian Enos. <laughs> I was like, "This is news to me." So he he is related to a Brian Enos, just not the Brian Enos. Uh, so anyway, all right. So let's roll, guys. So here's the thing. Again, we're recording a show, taking questions, legal questions relating to self defense. For Andrew Branca, and uh, we're going to address those on the on the podcast. This episode will air next week or two or three or sometime. Okay, uh, I don't know exactly when it's going to go. That's really funny. 
<laughs> so, and Michael says he really likes the way you talk in your videos. You should do books on tapes, voiceovers. <laughs> uh, cool. All right. So let's let's go, guys. Uh, I'll kick it off here again. Please submit questions in the chat. Like I said, that's going to be kind of what drives our conversation here today. All right. And as someone talks, I'll do my best to kind of move the camera around so you can see who's who's talking. All right. Actually, I can make some introductory introductory. So much good speaking <laughs> uh, comments as as questions pile up. Sure, that would be useful. A absolutely. So it's interesting because so. Chad and I were just talking um, actually about the George Zimmerman case because of course George Zimmerman used a Caltech pistol to defend himself against Trayvon Martin's right. attack uh, to shoot Trayvon Martin. And, of course, uh, the pistol did exactly what it was designed to do. Uh, it fired the shot George wanted. It did so decisively. It stopped the attack. Um, so George did uh, everything right there. The gun did everything right there. And, in fact, uh, I can tell you as someone who watched every minute of the trial and read the entire evidentiary file for that case, that, in fact, George Zimmerman did nothing legally wrong in that encounter, nothing at all. Uh, and this is a subject I lecture about at the FBI Academy down in Quantico, Virginia. Uh, now, he made a tactical mistake. He put himself in an ambush position and got himself ambushed. Uh, but, you know, he's not a uh, special operations soldier. He's just a, a normal guy like the rest of us. Uh, he thought he was doing the right thing, answering a police officer's inquiry when he got out of his car. Um, but it ended up getting him uh, ambushed. So he really made a mistake anyone could have made, tactically speaking, made no legal mistakes at all. And let, look, yet look at what that process the process he was subject to, the legal process. They used, in effect, the process of the criminal justice system as the punishment. Uh, keep in mind, it's not just me saying he did nothing wrong. The jury acquitted him unanimously of every criminal charge they brought against him. So they concluded he'd done nothing legally wrong as well. Nevertheless, that trial, uh, and I know this from speaking to his attorneys, uh, that trial billed out to well over $1.5 million in legal expenses. And now, naturally, he didn't pay that much. He didn't have that much. His lawyers kept representing him after he was out of money. Uh, but that's the kind of stakes we're talking about. And I like to remind people that the moment you go to that gun, you've incurred two risks you weren't incurring a moment before, a greater than zero risk of dying in a gunfight and a greater than zero risk of going to jail for the rest of your life, or if you avoid jail, expending virtually every resources you have in order to avoid jail. Now, there are circumstances worth taking those risks, right? Dying, having your family killed, those are circumstances worth those kinds of risks. But there aren't a lot of circumstances like that. And you need to make sure, and I'm an advocate for carrying concealed. I carry a concealed gun every day. I have my entire adult life. But you need to be aware of what the risks are so you can make sure the stakes you're fighting for are worth those risks. Again, folks, uh, we're doing this live only because we wanted to have some interactivity and get you to submit questions relating to self-defense. Yes, I, you see us wearing the head, head, headsets, but I was not prepared to do this, so I'm, I do not have the audio piped into the phone. So I apologize for that. Uh, oh, Chad's commenting that now. So I apologize for that. You're, the audio is not going to be that great. But if you'll submit your questions through the chat, then we'll have the opportunity to... You know, you'll hear this uh, uh, this interview be published on the podcast feed here very soon, okay? So anyway, so uh, Andrew, I'm curious. There's actually a question here that popped up uh, from a viewer, and, and this sometimes comes up, right? So talking about the Andrew Branca, or not, the, the George Zimmerman case, and uh, he, legally he did nothing wrong is what you just said, right? That's right. But what about 
morally? Like, how do you? I mean, I know this is a, a law. Uh, we're talking about law here. Sure. But your thoughts on like moral decisions? And you talk about the tactical errors. Is there anything that you see personally from like a moral standpoint, or what are some things people ought to consider morally speaking when it when it comes to using a lethal weapon in self defense? Well, I should say up front, I'm a lawyer, so I deal with the law. I'm not an expert in moral issues. Yeah. Um, I can certainly tell you that there's nothing I saw in George's conduct at any point in that interaction. Uh, he was doing anything I would characterize as being less than moral. He was, you know, he, he, George has made some poor decisions since the trial, and it's gotten him in some hot water occasionally. It made him look not very good. But I can assure you the prosecutors were looking for any dirt they could get on George Zimmerman for that trial. And they interviewed everyone in his community. Then the FBI came in and interviewed everybody in his community. And they were looking for people to say, well, he has a history of using uh, racial terms or racial antagonism or something they could use against him in court. And you know what they found? Absolutely nothing. Not only was George Zimmerman considered by his neighbors, who were multiracial, all kinds of backgrounds, black, white, everything in between. Not only was he considered a fine guy in the community, he was considered the nicest guy in the community. Whenever anybody had a difficulty, a lock was broken, something needed to be fixed, their groceries, they were struggling to get their groceries into the house, George was the guy who stopped to help them. They loved him. So he was not just a nice guy. He was an exceptionally, and unusually nice guy. I would, I would nice add guy. to that that yeah. that's, that's probably George's was a really nice guy and was concerned about what he saw, and that's what got him in trouble in the first place. So he was just trying to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> I've since uh, met George. I know him personally. He's a very nice guy. And I would uh, also like to add that uh, those legal things, uh, or those, I shouldn't say legal things, those media things that we've seen since the trial, uh, um, and since he was acquitted, a lot of that stuff is also blown completely out of proportion. Yeah. So, so this is an interesting thing to talk about, right? So we are here in the Caltech booth, and uh, conveniently, I mean, as far as the content, we just started talking. We, we just went down the road of talking about George Zimmerman, uh, and George was using a Caltech pistol that PF that nine. fateful day. <laughs> yep. Yep. PF nine. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, like you said, there was no legal, there's no, nothing, they couldn't pin anything. They tried, MSNBC did, altered some audio and tried to make them look like a racist. And I mean, they went, they tried as hard as they could to, to basically crucify a man who was simply defending his life, unfortunately. And, and, you know, to be clear to anybody listening to this that may not be a concealed carry person or necessarily like guns, maybe you're you're listening in uh, because uh, a friend is or a relative. Gun gun people, we don't carry guns because we want to shoot people. We you know we carry guns for protection. You know, and the last thing we want to do, uh, and I'm I'm sure you can certainly testify to this, is pull a firearm out and escalate any situation. So yeah. uh, George felt that his life was in danger. Uh, he had to use his firearm, and he's not excited about that you know yeah it's not like he's running around saying you know i defended myself with a pistol and defended my life and i had to you know take somebody's life whatever that's that's he struggles with that every day yeah so just yeah. to make that clear for sure yeah so you know, that's a great point you know because it's not just about the legal fight uh there's there's also again it kind of touches on the morality sort of thing just that there's there's the emotional side of things there's the uh, psychological side of things. I mean, you just went through this traumatic experience. Uh, 
the, the important thing is we got Andrew here to talk to with us about how not to get in trouble legally because that's the one fight we absolutely don't want to have to be concerned about because we already have to worry exactly. about the psychological, the emotional side of, of you know, the, the aftermath. Absolutely. Right. Well, I like to tell people, I mean, I, believe me, I wish I could tell people how not to get in trouble legally with absolute certainty. Um, it's not possible. Uh, any more than you can reduce the risk of the physical fight to zero. You can't do that. You get into a fight, I don't care how good you are with a gun or your hands or a knife, there's a greater than zero chance. It may be low. You may be really skilled, really well trained. The chance is always greater than zero that you could lose that fight. And it's the same with the legal fight. I mean, what I teach people is not how to be immune from the law. We don't teach legal tricks. We teach you what you need to know so you can reduce the legal risk as close to zero as possible. But it's never zero. It's always more than zero. Uh, the moment you go to that gun, you've opened up the door to likely the worst day of your life, uh, depending on how tough the law wants to be with you. And the, the Zimmerman case is a great example of this. I've, I watched every minute of the trial, read the entire evidentiary file, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of documents and recordings and court reports. And George literally didn't, there was no evidence inconsistent with innocence. There was no way they were going to get a conviction in that trial, absent a jury that went completely insane or was, uh, you know, uh, felt compelled by the politics and the hysteria of the moment. But no rational jury was ever going to convict George Zimmerman, especially of murder, beyond a reasonable doubt unanimously. That couldn't happen. But they used the process as the punishment. They brought him to trial anyway, and they wrecked that guy's life. And when you see things in the news where uh, you see bystanders don't get involved in some confrontation, you say, well, why didn't they help that poor victim who was getting beat up or whatever the case may be? It's because of cases like this. George Zimmerman was doing exactly what his neighborhood watch training had taught him to do. You see a suspicious character, you call the non-emergency police number to report the suspicion so the police will come. That's what he did. And he was talking to the dispatcher the entire time, right up until the moment before he was attacked. That's not the conduct of someone who's looking to murder somebody with malice. You don't call the police and keep them on the line while you're doing this. Um, he did everything he was supposed to do. He was among the more moral members of his community. Uh, but a lot of us see that experience, that punishment he was put through as part of the criminal justice process and say, well, that's the lesson for me, right? He was the good guy, the nice guy, trying to do the right thing, and they destroyed his life. Do I want that to happen to me? And most people are going to say no. That's not a fault of George Zimmerman. That's a fault of the system. Yeah. Andrew, do you have a law firm? I do. It's Law Self-Defense LLC. You can find us, shockingly enough, at lawselfdefense.com. Uh, we do a lot of uh, live classes. We do DVDs. We do books. We do all kinds of stuff. Uh, but the place I always recommend people to go to to get a feel for our content uh, is to just go to our blog, lawselfdefense.com forward slash blog. We always have at least some free content. It is largely a membership service, which is pretty cheap, five bucks a month. But there's always at least yeah. some free content there. Uh, and we like to think the, the real value add we bring to self-defense law is translating all the legalese of statutes, court right. decisions, jury instructions into plain English so it's actionable for people. So you can actually apply this knowledge in the tactical setting of self-defense and, and be more decisive in the physical fight because you'll know that what you're doing is within the legal boundaries. Yeah. Now, I asked the question because we had a question from a Facebook viewer here um, asking if you had any partners or associates in your firm. I do not have any partners or associates. I'm not hiring. 
<laughs> I don't do that kind of work, uh, but I, I do work with a lot of yeah. law firms that have partners in the show. You're basically hired as a, as a consultant. That's correct. So uh, we don't take as clients uh, people who are uh, might be charged with uh, a use of force crime or has some criminal liability. Uh, right. Those people retain their own lawyers in whatever jurisdiction is relevant to the case. And then their lawyer contacts us to retain us as a consultant on the case. So my clients are other lawyers. Yeah. Yep. Now, again, <clears throat> we're here in the Caltech booth at uh, the NRA annual meeting and exhibits. And uh, so Chad is, what's your title, dude? Marketing guru, marketing director, president of marketing. Exhibitor. <laughs> Exhibitor. It doesn't say it. Chad is the dude over, over marketing at uh, Caltech. And uh, here. So, Chad, I'm curious. This is, this is a special opportunity. You have no idea. I just brought this man into your booth. Uh, he, he is like, you know, he's the man. You, you, you can't get a hold of him on the phone. I'll just tell you that much. <laughs> I'm just teasing. So, uh, Chad, <clears throat> what kind of questions would you, if you had the opportunity to sit here with the nation's foremost expert on the law of self-defense, what's a question that comes to your mind? You know, <clears throat> uh, I know I put you on the spot. You did put me on the spot. <laughs> Uh, he was busy too. Just a second ago, you know, being all self, social and stuff, self you know, defense. doing selfies and stuff. Yeah, self defense <laughs> cases. Uh, I think there's just a lot of uh, there's a lot of myths out there, uh, and I don't think um, I don't think people. Uh, I think they get they go buy a firearm. They may get a little bit of training. They may not. Um, they'll get their concealed carry permit, but I don't think that they really think about the the legal aspect of carrying a firearm and as you mentioned if you have to take if you have to pull that gun out and especially if you have to use it it's going to change your life forever uh you know emotionally uh and possibly legally uh but you'll never your life will never be the same so um what would you uh how would you tell some being an attorney and, and being through these this process before and, and seeing it really from the inside and the legal standpoint, how would you uh, prepare someone uh, so we can train them? We can train them physically how to use a, a firearm. We can train them mentally how to fight. We can train them how to survive. How, do you, how would you uh, prepare someone mentally for the, the litigation, the, the, uh, the courtroom fight? Well, or that, can you? I, that's hard to do uh, without someone actually you know, kind of being a professional in the criminal justice system and seeing how that process actually works, you know, how the sausage is actually made. It's almost impossible to describe unless you have that experience. <laughs> so what we try to do is keep people from ending up in that environment in the first sure. place. Um, and the best way to do that is to make yourself what I call, we, one of our catchphrases at Law of Self-Defense is you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, know the law so you're hard to convict. Uh, it's very hard to convict someone if their use of force is well within the legal boundaries. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, even with everything they did to George Zimmerman, they still couldn't convict him because, in fact, his use of force was lawful. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, the trouble we see in the gun-owning community is not that there's not lots of training where you can get someone will teach you self-defense law. Uh, there's lots of information out there. Unfortunately, most of the information is bad information. Exactly. It's bad. A lot law. of myths. It's, it's yeah. not the actual law. Um, that's one issue we run into is people have been taught a lot and they think they've been trained and what they've been taught is nonsense. It's not based on actual law or people 
It's almost like when people think about writing a will or something. It's uncomfortable to think about these use of force events and the legal risks. Mm -hmm. And some people, they're kind of emotionally attached to this notion of what they'd like the law to be as mm -hmm. opposed to what the law actually is. I can shoot trespassers. Well, no, you can't shoot trespassers, but they don't want to give that up because then, well, if I can't shoot a trespasser, what am I supposed to do? The tactical situation gets a lot more complicated, yeah. right? Uh, they've lost their major option. Um, the other issue we encounter a lot with people is they go out, they get a concealed carry permit, they get that gun, they strap it on, and now mentally they feel like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to deal with the threats out there in the world. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, but if you look at the FBI Department of Justice statistics, you're five times more likely to face a non-deadly force threat, a simple assault, mm -hmm. than you are to face a deadly force threat, an aggravated assault. And the gun's only lawful against that 20%, that's the deadly force attack. But what happens with normal law-abiding people who aren't fighters, they're not used to the stress of a, of a threat or a danger, they see that non-deadly danger, and it's scary, right? Some guy's shoving them, right? That's, nobody likes that. Uh, yeah. And the only defensive tool they have is the gun. Mm -hmm. Well, what they do is they go to the gun. And then they get hit with an aggravated assault with a weapons charge, with a firearm charge. Uh, and in most states, that's a serious felony. You're looking at 10, 20, maybe 30 years in prison on that charge. They didn't fire a shot. They didn't hurt anybody. But the gun came out under circumstances in which presenting the gun was not lawful. Yeah. And that's, uh, you brought up a good point just there, uh, albeit subtly. Uh, your state or even county may have laws on the books that, uh, that you're unaware of. This isn't, the law is not just a general, uh, self-defense law is not just general, I, I would assume, that you have to really kind of know your local laws. Like, for instance, there's certain handguns you can't carry in certain places, and some places you can't carry a handgun at all. Uh, but people, people just sort of, like you said, they sort of just generalize concealed carry and self-defense, and uh, you, know, really, you really need to, to know uh, where you are what the legalities may be um, for pulling your pistol out. You know, that's a great point you grow, brought up because there's, there's a certain subtlety there that many people don't think about, so I can clarify that. Uh, we need to distinguish between use of force law, which determines when you can use force and how much, on the one hand, and gun law on the second, which determines what kind of gun can you carry, is there a magazine capacity limit, what kind of permit do you need, or is it constitutional carry? Those are really two different things. Uh, use of force law is really on the state level. So within a state, it's pretty, the law itself, the black letter law is pretty consistent across the state. Gun law varies enormously. Sure. In fact, I don't think it's possible for any attorney to claim to be a 50 state expert on gun law just because it varies so much and changes so frequently. Yeah. Self-defense law in terms of the statutes, court decisions, jury instructions uh, is pretty consistent within a state and pretty consistent across states. It's about 80% the same across the states. Where you get variance on a local level, even a municipal, a county level, and use of force law, it's not so much the law itself, but the use of discretion by the authorities to determine whether they're going to charge, uh, right. indict, prosecute. That can change uh, with... From, uh, it changes a lot from state to state. I can tell you Massachusetts and Colorado, very different uses mm -hmm. of discretion when it comes to use of a gun. It can change within a state. If you're in the city of Denver or you're where I live, south of Denver in a more uh, suburban area, very different decision-making. Exact same case, exact same facts. They'll make this different decisions about whether to put you in front of a grand jury, whether to bring you to trial. Uh, it can change even from prosecutor to prosecutor in an office. It can change with the same prosecutor from week to week. Um, wow. He might have a, a busy week where he's got a lot of cases on his desk and he decides I'm not going to deal with that gun case. Or he could have a slow week. When he doesn't have a lot to do, and say, all right, I'm slow. I'll take that case now. Same exact case, right. same exact facts, different decision. 
Wow. Now, fortunately, in many cases, that discretion is used favorably for the gun owner. So they could arrest, they could prosecute, they could probably convict, and they choose not to because they have a general sense that, well, technically what he did was against the law, but he's never been in trouble with the law before. He's a law-abiding citizen. That's a known dirtbag. We're not going to prosecute this guy. But I always tell people you, that's, that's not within your control. That's you, some, you can't rely on something right, like you that. Can't, right. You yeah. can't prepare only for what they might do if they're feeling favorably disposed. Keep in mind, for example, with the Zimmerman trial, the first prosecutor on Zimmerman's case resigned rather than bring him to trial. Yeah. I mean, he gave up his job rather than bring what he considered an unjust prosecution. <laughs> and they had to bring in an outside prosecutor with political motivations to actually sure. bring the case. So we always have to be prepared, not for what might happen if they decide to use their discretion favorably. We have to be prepared for what can happen mm-hmm. if they decide to go all out, if they decide to Zimmerman us. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Here, here's Good a question, point. Andrew. Um, speaking of discretion cases, aggressive pr- prosecutors or not aggressive prosecutors, uh, and, and also speaking of Florida, where Caltech is based, um, there's that other case fairly recently, somewhat controversial, high profile, et cetera, et cetera. The parking uh, shooter park over a parking yeah, yeah. space. Yeah, handicap so, parking spot. And case. I think you've addressed that somewhat, but could you recap that from what you've observed so far in that case? I mean, and that's another one too, where the sheriff said, uh, "We're not, we're not charging this guy," but then a prosecutor got involved. Uh, I think an outside prosecutor even. I think that got, I think that was, I can't remember exactly all the facts of the case, but maybe you can enlighten us a little bit on that, in that situation. Yeah, well, I mean, I've studied that case closely, and frankly, I can see it going either way. I mean, I think there's reasonable facts to support not trying the guy, and I think there's reasonable facts to support trying the guy. Yeah. So it's not a surprise to me that he's going to trial. Uh, what the sheriff had to say about the case was complete legal nonsense. Right. Uh, What that Florida law is intended to do is if there's essentially zero evidence inconsistent with self-defense, they're supposed to be prohibited from arresting you for that use of force. There's not zero evidence inconsistent with self-defense here. It's arguable whether the firing of that shot was necessary self-defense. I could make the case that it was based on the facts. He got knocked to the ground by someone stronger and younger than him. Okay, and who was still looming over him. I could make the case that it was not necessary lawful self-defense. Sure, the guy knocked him down, but when he saw the gun, it looked like he began to step back. Keep in mind, what really matters is not exactly what was caught on the camera, but what the defendant would have reasonably perceived what was happening. So we have to take that into account, too. So I could see this guy getting acquitted or getting convicted at trial and... uh, I'm not sure you could really argue the verdict either way. It's going to come down to, you know, the stories, the narratives that are told to the jury yeah. by the prosecution and defense and what the jury believes, uh, what the jury most buys into. Now, you ha- we do have to keep in mind that the it's not the defense job to prove self-defense. It's the prosecution's job to disprove self-defense and to do that beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a pretty high threshold. That's frankly the biggest thing that the law-abiding public has going for it, the very high threshold yeah. the prosecution has to reach. Uh, the trick with self-defense is there are, well, in Florida, there's four elements to a self-defense claim. F- think of it as four ingredients. And this, all four have to be present for your act, your use of force to be self-defense. So the prosecution doesn't have to disprove all four of them. He has to disprove any one of them. And if he can do that beyond a reasonable doubt, then the jury will be instructed that self-defense is off the table. Right. Speaking yeah, of that, uh, so Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground... Uh, can you briefly break down those two things for the listeners and where those are implemented? And- sure. 
So they're related concepts, and they both deal with one of those elements I mentioned. Uh, there's actually, in many states, five elements. There's only four in Florida because Florida is a stand-your-ground state. So that, that fifth element I'm talking about now that doesn't exist in Florida is a legal duty to retreat, what I call the element of avoidance. If you have a safe avenue of retreat, are you required to take advantage of that before you can use force in self-defense? Um, hundreds of years ago, that was the norm, and American law ultimately derives from Old English common law. And the, the English rule was, yes, you had a legal duty to retreat, but this was hundreds of years ago, before, for example, firearms were common. People had impact weapons, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot easier to flee safely from an impact weapon, right? If you can get 20 or 30 feet away, you're effectively safe from it. That's not true with a gun. Uh, so the, the normal rule in America has always been that there's no legal duty to retreat. That's always been the norm. Uh, even in states that we think of as liberal states like California. California is a stand-your-ground state and has been since the 1800s based on old court decisions. I'm sure people are shocked to hear that right <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, but there was a period during the 50s and 60s in which a lot of states became... Um, they, they grew negative towards self-help, self-defense, use of force. And so they tightened up the rules. And one way they tightened up the rules was to reimpose this legal duty to retreat. That's always been a minority position in America. Today, there's only 14 states that impose a legal duty to retreat. What the Castle Doctrine is, is the Castle Doctrine says, and this was under Old English law, and it's the law under the 14 states that have reimposed that theory of retreat. The Castle Doctrine says, listen, normally when you're out in public, you have a generalized legal duty to retreat if you can do th so safely before you can use force in self-defense. But there's always at least one exception, and that is if you're in your home dealing with an intruder. Then we won't impose that legal duty to retreat. Um, so Castle Doctrine relieves you of that legal duty to retreat when you're in your home dealing with an intruder. What Stand Your Ground does, it says, you know what, if we're going to relieve you of that legal duty in your home dealing with an attacker, we're going to relieve you of it everywhere. Um, we're not going to impose it anywhere if you're dealing with an attacker and you're otherwise the innocent victim of an unlawful use of force against you. Okay. Uh, now, stand your ground is not, as the media often reports, some weird alternative way of claiming self-defense. <laughs> right. uh, when you claim self-defense in a stand your ground state like Florida, you're doing exactly the same thing that you would be, say, in a, a duty to retreat state like Massachusetts. Um, you just, instead of having five elements of a self-defense claim, you only have four. But the other elements still have to be present. So you still have to be the innocent victim, not the aggressor. You have to be facing a threat that's about to happen right now, an imminent threat, not some future, I'm mm -hmm. going to go home and get my sure. gun and come back and shoot you. You have to use no more force than reasonably necessary. And your conduct in all respects has to be reasonable. So it can't just be some kind of subjective fear of harm. It has to be the kind of harm a normal, reasonable, and prudent person would believe is about to happen. Uh, so you're still arguing self-defense, even in a stand-your-ground state, except they're not going to require you to try to retreat before you can defend yourself if those other elements are present. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah, that's a really, well good, said. really good explanation. Um, we're getting close to time here, but uh, <clears throat> I wanted to ask here, this is an interesting question. I've never heard you talk about this, Andrew. Michael asks, how was it that you became the lawyer that lawyers call for these types of cases. <laughs> um, well, I, I'd like to say all kinds of nice things about myself, but it turns out mostly that nobody else was doing it. Uh, <laughs> so there was a, a market opportunity. I, I had some unusual circumstances. I've, I've had a, a fairly successful career in, in younger years, so I had the luxury of basically taking a couple years off and building this business. Um, a, a traditional law practice could never do this because there's not a lo enough self-defense cases in any region around a typical lawyer's office for that lawyer to focus exclusively on self-defense. Um, even 
I mean, many criminal defense lawyers don't even focus exclusively on criminal defense. They don't have enough business doing that. So it's very common to find a criminal defense lawyer, half his time he does criminal defense, half his time he does family law. That's not mm-hmm. unusual at all. Um, if a criminal defense attorney was going to give up all the DWIs and all the other criminal stuff he normally handles and just do self-defense cases, he'd probably have two cases a year. <laughs> You're not paying a mortgage with that. Uh, but I had the, the fortune to be able to take a couple of years off of a normal law practice and, and build up this network of being a legal consultant for attorneys all over the country. So I consult on cases all the time because I'm not limited to whatever town my office is in. I, I consult to law cases in all 50 states. Well, thank God for guys like you or you. I don't know if there are guys like you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I Honestly, I can't think of anybody. I mean, are you aware of any other attorneys that do exactly what you do? Uh, to my knowledge, I'm the only attorney in the country that does nothing but use of force cases. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff, folks. Um, let's see. I'm, gonna, I'm going to questions. Maybe we can take one more here. Uh, let's see. Um, so I'm going to move on here to... Hmm. Actually, I thought, I thought I saw another question, but I'm not seeing... Tell you what, folks. We're about out of time, so I got time for one more question. If you sneak it in here in the comments, I'll ask it of Andrew. Chad, tell us real quick, what's uh, what's going on with Caltech these days? What are you excited about? Anything new um, that you could talk about? Uh, obviously, we had the CP33. That's a new 22 long rifle semi-automatic pistol at SHOT Show. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, I enjoyed shooting that very much. We, uh, we had the uh, KS7 shotgun. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, I, I like to think of it as the single stack of the, you know, of, of, of its much bigger version here, yeah. <laughs> the KS-25. Uh, well, originally had, originally had the, KS, the KSG. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, what do we got here? All right. So, uh, NRA this year, we're introducing the RDB Tactical. Ooh, I like the looks of that, too. Yeah, so everybody's been wanting these handguards. The shooting team has them. Yeah. And uh, we weren't bashful about showing them off because we actually thought we were going to get the extrus- extrusion and be able to build these things. Um but uh, <laughs> we came out with some other guns. We've got a pretty substantial engineering team, and all these yeah. guys are like trying to race to get the ball, you know, over the finish line with different projects and stuff. So things like accessories kind of get put on the back back burner. But we got the extrusion. Uh, we're we're making these rails will be available very soon. But it's actually going to come uh, on the RDB tactical, so cool. which is essentially uh, it's a survival model, which is a 16-inch barrel, very lightweight barrel. Uh, but it's got the pistol grip uh, and the uh, survival stock. So everything about it is survival except for the grip and the, and the uh, hand, uh, M-Lock handguard. And these, yes, are all M-Lock uh, yeah. slots. So. so it's super lightweight. Yes. Uh, it's short. Very compact. Yep, yep. yep. And uh, looks great. I, I love the look of that, of that handguard. I've, you know, I've seen and admired your rifle at a distance for some t- some time now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. It's two two three, I presume. Is it that, is yeah. chambered in five five six. Five five six. Okay. Yep. Unless yep. you're in Canada. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. I'm I'm just taking a look to see if there's any other questions. Yeah, that looks here. like a nice home defense package. It really is. It, yeah. I mean, you can you can accessorize the rail. Put a light and a dot on ah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a good question here, Andrew. Is carrying reloaded ammo ever a legal issue if used in self-defense? Heard it, but wondering if myth. Uh, well, first of all, anytime anybody ever asks me, is can X be used against you in court? The answer is always yes. I don't care what X is. Uh, prosecutors are in it to win. They will use anything they have at their disposal 
against you in court. If by against you in court we mean, can I talk about it in front of the jury to make you look bad in front of the jury? The answer is always yes. In the Zimmerman case, we've mentioned repeatedly, uh, the prosecutor went on at length in that trial in front of the jury about the fact that not only did George Zimmerman have, by the way, they called it a kill tech, not a yeah. kill tech, they called it a kill tech in court. Um, not only did he have that handgun, he was carrying it with a round in the chamber in the ready-to-fire position <gasps> to suggest yes. some kind of malice on Zimmerman's part. Of course, it's a ridiculous argument. Every bailiff in that courtroom was carrying with a round in the chamber. Uh, but they, he was allowed to make that argument in front of the jury anyway. So anything can be used against you if we mean they can try to make you look bad. The real question is, how much damage are they likely to be able to cause with that argument, and how... Um, Easily can your lawyer mitigate whatever that potential damage yeah. is. In the case of the George Zimmerman anecdote I just gave you, the defense didn't even address it because it was so ridiculous they didn't think they needed to bother. Uh, if you carry your own self-loaded ammo, might a prosecutor use that to suggest something's wrong with you? Uh, that you like try to make intent. extra deadly, sure, to suggest malice. There yeah. are levels of murder, and the higher levels of murder generally require malice, that you were preparing to kill. You created an especially damaging bullet in some way. Is that nonsense? Yeah. I mean, I've reloaded thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds on my Dillon Press. They're just bullets. There's nothing remarkable about them, except I tend to use lead bullets because they're less expensive. Um, but that does, that, the fact that it's silly doesn't necessarily keep the prosecutor from talking about it. So what, what I try to urge people to do when they pick guns, when they pick ammo, is just pick stuff that's normal, uh, not stuff that's odd. Now, I'm not talking about play guns or match guns or I don't care what you pick for that. Guns you're carrying on your person for personal protection. Uh, pick a gun that's just a normal type of gun uh, and pick ammo that's normal ammo. What's the definition of normal ammo? Well, you might inquire what your local police department is carrying, for example, and carry that. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty hard for a prosecutor to attack that there's malice associated with the ammo that that local department carries. Uh, personally, I've got friends who work for the FBI. Every year I ask them, what are you guys carrying this year? And then I just buy a carton of that, and that's my self-defense ammo for the year. Sure. Um, what I wouldn't do is pick something that's odd. Sometimes you see these esoteric brands, these uh, you know super death cal uh, rounds or whatever, <laughs> uh, weird marketing gimmicks. Uh, just pick a good, solid, reliable, expanding self-defense round from a reputable manufacturer and leave it at that. Yeah. I, know they're, I know they're expensive. Uh, but the stakes we're talking about are a lot more than 35 or 50 bucks for a box of ammo. That's going to be the least of your concerns if that gun yeah. has to come out of your holster. I carry what our sheriff's department carries. Yeah. Uh, real quick, just kind of like, because we're out of time, but uh, are you aware of any cases where reloaded ammo be made a difference, a significant difference in the outcome of a case, in your opinion? I think there's one. Or maybe there's not one. Here's a, here's a problem. We just don't know. Okay. Uh, and the reason we don't know is the cases, the court decisions, the rulings that are preserved for lawyers are the ones that have what are called precedential value. In other words, they're controlling sure. not just in that case, but in other cases. Those are the ones we have to be worried about as lawyers because it could affect our future client who's in similar circumstances. But the only decisions that have that precedential value and are captured are appellate court decisions. The Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court of your state trial court decisions are not captured anywhere because they're right. not controlling on anybody else. But if you look at where the, the number of decisions are made, thousands of more decisions are made at the trial level and never captured for us to research than at the appellate level 
where they are captured, but there's only a relative few of them. Where decisions like was a round used against a defendant in the court, that all happens at the trial level. So unless we happen to be in court or read about the argument in the newspaper, there's no way for a lawyer to research whether at the trial level that's happened or not. Yeah. So the only evidence we have is anecdotal. Yeah, got it. Good answer, Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Chad, to uh, Keltec. Thanks for making this possible for us, allowing us to come in here. Folks, You're give Keltec some love. Uh, we love them. They're good guys, good people. Make, make their guns by hand right here in the good old USA in uh, Florida. And, uh, of course, Standard give, ground state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, give Andrew Brinka and Law of Self-Defense uh, some love. And uh, so with that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks so much. And we're back. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode today. I hope you got some valuable info and content out of that interview. You know, it's it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with Andrew Branca of Law of Self-Defense. And, of course, having Chad Enos on board and having his, his perspective. And, of course, he works for a manufacturer. But Chad, I know, is a very passionate lover of the Second Amendment and defender of truth as it relates to our, I think, natural-born right to self-defense and having a tool such as a firearm, maybe even a Caltech firearm at our disposal to be used in defense when called upon. Hopefully it doesn't have to happen, but you know, that's things happen and that's why we spend our time training and learning and studying and hopefully getting a little bit better each day. Well, again, just a reminder to support uh, our great sponsors, support Caltech and uh, also Law of Self-Defense. You can always learn more at caltechweapons.com and also lawofselfdefense.com. All right. And then again, a reminder of our Happy Birthday America sale launching tomorrow morning, July 2nd, 8 a.m. Mountain Time. And take advantage of huge sales. So head on over to happybdayamerica.com. That's happy, B-D-A-Y, America.com. Learn what it takes to be a part of our tribe, of our family. You're already a part of our family because you're listening to the podcast, but uh, the I guess you're our extended family if you listen to the podcast, but you're not a Guardian Nation member. That's okay. We love our extended family too. But uh, check out all the details at happybdayamerica.com and also guardiannation.com for more information about becoming a Guardian Nation member. We hope that you'll be part of the nation. So with that, we will let you go. We'll actually have a special interview tomorrow, a great episode tomorrow uh, recorded live with Gary Ramey of Honor Defense and also Jason Wilson from Lucid Optics. And we're going to be talking about what it takes to basically entrepreneur, okay? we Entrepreneuring in the firearms or outdoor or self-defense industries, all right? So... Gary Ramey, Honor Defense, of course, being a, another firearms uh, manufacturer, and uh, Jason Wilson over at Lucid Optics. A couple different perspectives, really good dudes making really great products. So look forward to that interview coming to you tomorrow. So with that, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.